Welcome to our discussion segment on Genius, the Life of Michelangelo. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Joe, sometimes I think we struggle to uh, come up with titles for these things, but this one, just one, one simple word was pretty clear, genius. So I, I, I appreciated the title as much as I appreciated the episode. This is a really good one. Yeah, it was difficult to come up with a title that would encapsulate a man like this. Yeah. And that was the word that kept coming to the top of mm-hmm. all thought. Yeah. For sure. I agree. So before we dig into the details of his life, are there two or three pieces that you think really encapsulate who Michelangelo was as a man and his vision for art and how he wanted to make the world a more beautiful place? I think you see the progression of the man th- throughout his life. So as said in the podcast, he was he was trained to paint on plaster, mm-hmm. not on uh, canvases. I think that he saw that as inherently more powerful because generally plasters were part of a structure. Mm. So you had that lasting effect of something that was being painted onto something that was that couldn't easily be moved around. Sculptures were the same way. When da- when he constructed David, it actually was put outside for a long time because mm-hmm. it wouldn't fit through the door of the uh, church it was supposed to go into. Really? Yeah. How so, big is it? It's... Uh, it's not life-size, is it? No, it's larger than that. But you can see in the sculpture that that David's head is disproportionately larger, mm-hmm. and his right arm is as well. And there's the belief that hmm. he was he was he was carving it to be indoors in a uh, cathedral or a church. And as a result, you know, we've talked about on this podcast the intention for people to look up. And so when you would look up at the statue, the head would seem larger. And so Interesting. Much. Yeah. So that's actually not what happened. It was actually outside, and then they realized this thing's going to break, and it started to break, and so right. on. So really long answer. To answer your question, I, I think that the it's kind of a bigger thing to look at the scope of his work when you look at the defined lines of everything he does. Mm-hmm. There, there's no abstraction. And and that's that's what speaks to me. Okay, so you wouldn't say that you you couldn't pick out a couple pieces like with Da Vinci, you pick out the Vitruvian Man or the Mona Lisa or something like that. There's, it's more of just the whole body of his work that shows. The, one of the works I talked about in the podcast, the Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. is is one I would go to. Yeah, because you have those defined lines. But when you look at the pictures that he painted on the ceiling, there is depth there mm-hmm. that seems unending. How did he do that? That I, was actually my next question. I, yeah. I, Looking at the pictures of that ceiling and his work, you can't help but feel feel kind of the welling up of of awe mm-hmm. from seeing something like that, that this is the flat surface, but it does not look like that. Yeah. Now, how did he paint the Sistine Chapel? On his feet. He did not paint it on his back. He did not. Okay, because no. the, the story that I remember reading years and years ago was he was laying on his back the whole time and painting. Yeah, so the scaffolding, he actually created himself. I don't know that he was the first creator of that type of thing, but he engineered it and said, you know, obviously I need to be able to walk around mm-hmm. and be able to access certain or large areas of the uh, church ceiling. The scaffolding did not go the length of the church. It was only in specific sections. So he would finish a section. Right. They would deconstruct it and then have it moved. Hmm. Okay. So he was standing on his feet with his, you know, head, head up. facing up. Okay. Right. Oh my gosh. His neck must have hurt so bad after yeah. even just one day of doing that. It made sense though, because he needed to see the scope of the work and how it unfolded. Right. And if you're laying on your back, you are so close to it that you could miss some things. Mm-hmm. So 
by all accounts that I've read, he was on his feet just staring up. Okay. And how long did it take him to paint it? Four years. Four years. Wow. What's the significance of the Sistine Chapel in the broader uh, complex of Vatican City? Why was it given such... Uh, a beautiful ceiling. I mean, I know most of the buildings in the in the Vatican have these kinds of frescoes, but there's something unique about the Sistine Chapel. Why why was it given such loving attention? The walls had been painted years before, and I think that his original commission was a simple one. Mm-hmm. And there is a good chance that when he looked at the walls, he felt like the commission was not enough, and that's why he said, "I will do this, mm-hmm. but you will let me do it my way." Okay. And the, the Pope said, okay. Right. And so he tried to match the story that he saw on the walls to something that when you look up, you see the story of creation, the fall of man, and then you see the good news surrounding it. Mm-hmm. People prophetically telling us that Christ is coming, that here's the good news. And so I think that there was some inspiration from the structure itself, from the paintings that were there before, mm-hmm. and then just his his drive to go above and beyond what's asked of him, to define those lines. It always goes back to what's contained within the lines that that he forms. So stepping back a little bit uh, in his life, did he show talent early on in art yes. and in sculpture? Okay, so do you think he was almost like a Mozart, almost like a once-in-a-one-in-a-million shot at having this kind of talent and ability? Or do you think it was raw talent then refined by by practice and by training with various other craftsmen. Yes, to both. To both. Okay. It's very rare for a 13-year-old to have this kind of skill even now. But when you see the person and even as an apprentice, he still had to put in the work. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just you have this talent and you don't have to work for it. It was the grit that he had to endure and also the humility to look at other artists and gain inspiration. Mm-hmm. It wasn't him working in a silo. Would he have been as successful if he was not born at this time, in this place, with access to the artists and poets and inspirations that he took in? I actually don't think so. Yeah. I think that he would have been good, but not historically good, not world-renowned, not not the character in history that we see and know mm-hmm. and stand in awe of. So if he'd been born even a century earlier during the Dark Ages, tail end of the Dark Ages, but rather than at the birth of the Renaissance, you think he would have been just one of a stable of of church painters or something like that? I think his works would have still been exemplary, but they would have been taken in a different light mm-hmm. and viewed differently. The Renaissance, you know, as you've talked about in past podcasts, came out of the Dark Ages. And so we view the paintings there differently. I think, so as an example... Would he have used such bright colors? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I think that the bright colors, the defined lines, all of those things, and the really the insane uh, attention to detail to the human body and the lines in our face or the brain or so on that he put into it, I don't think it would have been as defined given the influences a hundred years earlier because the influence was, it's not this life, it's the next life. So would there have been as much emphasis on creating the lines of the human form? Probably not. Mm-hmm. It would be like, how do we embody the eternal lines? Where are those? And so, and so on. So I think that the time when he was born definitely influenced his everything, mm-hmm. his style, his, his outlook, and what caused him to keep going. Would you say that that's the influence of Renaissance humanism in how he wanted to portray the human form 
as perfectly as possible because it seems like most of his art was spiritual in nature or was focused on the next life, unlike Da Vinci and Botticelli and people like that who are painting more kind of not mundane but more more temporal imagery. So do you think his influences of Renaissance humanism were how he shaped or how he portrayed the human form and less about the subject matter that he chose? I think that the subject matter influenced the importance of the human form. So his belief or his faith in God and what happened on on the cross and then afterward emphasized the creation, the created being, the the background where someone stood. Mm-hmm. All of that went into it. So I think that his faith in the eternal influenced his temporal work. So he would focus on those temporal forms, humans, animals, background, and so on. Trees, plants, stuff like right, that. Right. Yeah. And so his faith in the creator and the creator's attention to detail mandated his attention to the lines that he mm. used to to form us. So I think that it was kind of a combination of both. I think that it was kind of an eternal focus, but it was using the temporal to shift our focus to the eternal, like, look at what your creator has done. Do you know anything about how much he worked with Da Vinci? You mentioned Da Vinci in the podcast. Do you know if there were any influences that were traded between Da Vinci and Michelangelo or vice versa or anything like that? I don't know of specific ones. I know that the work that they that they did opposite each other, you can definitely see the contrast in styles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unfortunate that, that the sketches and all of that were lost. Yeah. But uh, I think that during that time, everyone was playing off of each other. And from all accounts that I've read, he was not a uh, know-it-all, as we would consider really? it. Okay. Yeah, so... I think he was, people may have seen him that way, but my interpretation of what I've read about him is he was so focused, it just that was his whole life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes across as arrogant, but other times it's it just comes across as skillful. Yeah. It ain't bragging if you can do it. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. Why was Florence such a center of the Renaissance as opposed to any other part in, uh, in Italy? Do you know why, what's if there was something specific about that city and was it tied to the Medici's and their, uh, their love of art and their willingness to spend truckloads of money to commission it? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I believe. So the encouragement that was going on in that city definitely drew artists from all over the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't the only center though, but for the purposes of our, the podcast, it was important because that's where he, he spent all, a lot of his time. But it was, yeah, any place that was facilitating the artistic expression during this time, artists would flock to. And talking about other Renaissance masters, I know specifically Da Vinci would almost always have like a model in his studio, a person that he would use to, to uh, as not inspiration, but as, as kind of just a model, as a focus for his, for his art. Do you know if Michelangelo did that as well, or was he basically going off of just his own eye? It was a combination of eye and sketches. So, okay. is there a chance that he saw pe- people out in the street that he would say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw their face"? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. But he know. didn't hire someone to be David or to be Adam or God in those in those works of art. I've not read that that was highlighted. Okay. So, could he have possibly? But right. I think it was more about the sketches that he had in his mind based on what he had seen. Okay. Would you say that there was? beyond the general love of the creator and a love of creation, kind of a unifying theme to his art. Because with, again, Da Vinci, 
it's the glorification of the human body, the human mind, and the human soul. Was there any kind of unifying theme there, or was it just he's given a piece of work and he's going to do it, he's going to create it to the best of his ability? Well, I think there was that for sure, but I think that the unifying theme for him were the lines that he drew. Mm -hmm. They were clear boundaries. So I think that he really paid attention to form, and form for him was the prevalent theme. So form that we would consider the creator to be how he influenced our form, how we influence the forms around us. This is my own view, mm -hmm. um, just in terms. So I'm sure people who have studied his life, their entire life would, would have other views, obviously. Yeah. But it's just those boundaries and his ability to put so much into them was what I've seen in all his work. Okay. And why do you think that his art creates such a longing? I mean, throughout history, you read of people seeing his works. It creates a longing for heaven and for the glories of heaven and for the, the life that is to come. What about him in his own life made him want to create that? Because it had to have been more, more than just his faith in God or something like that. Because if you look at his work versus anyone else from the Renaissance or even going forward, like in the Romantic movement, there's no one that captures right. the, the, just the majesty of heaven and the majesty of earth. Where did that come from? I addressed that a little bit in the podcast. Right. I just I wanted you to be yeah, able to have a little bit more time. His faith was very important to him. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have that as a driver combined with a natural talent that he possessed, influenced by the city he was in and the people that he had access to and honed through skill and practice, I think that you you get what we see. Hmm. The reason why it causes so much awe is it's it's difficult to walk past one of his work and just be like, that's cool. <laughs> There's something different about it. And it's something that you you need to just stop and look at and say, a human created that. But it's otherworldly. It's something that's different than any other human has ever created. I know that sounds mystical or whatever else, but there's something there's something out of place with the level of skill that he put into every detail and every piece that he did. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a combination of when you see something with this level of skill, you can't help but stop. It is a reflection of man's ability to get as close to creation, him being the creator, as we can get. And I think finally, it's just the realization of a man's deep faith shown in his work. So, and that leads into my, my last question, kind of uh, to close this out. You are an artist of a different type. You write stories and things <laughs> like that. I wouldn't go that far, but thank well, you. Well, I mean, you are, and, and, and people should go take a look at Joe's book on Amazon called Fear Place. It's fantastic. Thank you. The, I look at art through the lens of, there was, a, there was an essay, I think it was a lecture, delivered by J.R.R. Tolkien, who I think is one of the greatest creators of, yep. a, of a world, uh, certainly of the 20th century. The lecture is called On Fairy Stories, and he talks about what, we, what he called sub-creation, the idea that we take what we see in our world, the product of real creation, and we sub-create out of it. What, for those who are listening, who maybe are, are thinking about wanting to get into art and wanting to, or writing or music or something like that, what does it take in your, from your reading of Michelangelo's, um, from your study of Michelangelo, 
what does it take to be a great sub-creator using what you see and then teasing it out and creating your own world or your own art, your own stories, your own music, whatever it is? Great question. Jack London is quoted as saying, you don't wait for inspiration. You chase it and beat it over the head at the club. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Much like a wolf that he yeah, may have yeah, yeah. And fought it, in, in Alaska. The reason why is because there's this misunderstanding when it comes to artistic expression, in my opinion. There is, I need to wait for the train to show up that will inspire me, that contains all the ideas, will inspire me to do what, what I think I should be doing. Instead... It is the daily grind. It is mm. that daily dedication to pulling the person out of the marble. Michelangelo did not finish sculpting something in one day. It was an ongoing process. And can you imagine how many pieces or how many blocks of marble that he had to start over Oh, I from? can't imagine. No. So it's this constant violent, violent process where you have to get what you're trying to say and what you're trying to show into a medium that other people can understand and enjoy. I read a great book years ago called On Writing. Stephen King wrote it, and it was the first book when when I first started to write a lot. Um, it gave me hope because before I read that book, I thought, well, I have to be like Hemingway or mm -hmm. Faulkner, which are two opposite sides of the spectrum, yeah. but but still, <laughs> I mean, you, you can't help but be like, I have to be like these guys that are that people teach about. I can't just have fun with it. Mm -hmm. And and that book on writing just said, no, that's completely wrong. I remember reading. He said, you define yourself as a successful writer if you've used money that you've gotten from a story to pay your light bill. There's the having that understanding that you don't have to be Superman that it is going to take grit and hard work. And uh, for on, in the book on writing, he talked about having a daily uh, dedication to writing. For him, somebody that's what he does full time, he does 2,000 words a day. And he does not stop until he's done. Has he published every word he's ever hmm. written? No, he absolutely has not. And after you have that schedule in place, it can be 500 a day, it can be 1,000, whatever your schedule allows for, you then take the understanding that you write the first draft with the door closed, meaning it's for you. You have to get it on paper. You have to understand it. And I think that's why a lot of artists do sketches. I need to see what I'm going to see. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the subsequent drafts are with the door open. It's for everyone else. That's when it becomes less about you and more about your audience. And that's when you have to get rid of text that you think is brilliant and wonderful and I'm so insightful. I'm so proud of myself for uh, what I've written and what I've created. You have to kill all that. Hmm. And um, because, again, it's, it's now about your reader. So I think that to, to answer you, it, it does require some talent. But more than that, it requires grit. You have got to constantly hone your craft, especially nowadays with all these distractions and wastes of time. And that was something that, and that, was something that Michelangelo did not subscribe to. He did not subscribe to wasting time. Hmm. You, he was very clear about you have one life. You have to use your time appropriately. Now, he didn't have any kids and he was involved with family, but he, he was singularly focused on his craft. Uh, but I he didn't create a David or a Pieta every day. Is, he is, did not. Yeah. He did not. Yeah. There's a reason why we only go to some of his works mm -hmm. and highlight those. I mean, over 200 pieces of art, and there's ones that, that people remember out of hand. There's a reason for that because not everything you make is going to be a David. Yeah. 
And sometimes it may be a lifetime of terrible work that will lead up to singular work that people really enjoy. Well, thank you for joining us in our discussion of genius. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Next week, we'll have a special Thanksgiving episode, and we'll be back to regular podcasts and discussions on November 30th. Thank you, and see you next week.